Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, August 11th, 2023. The weather outlook for today looks sunny and beautiful, although it will be quite humid with highs in the mid-80s. Tonight, the skies will be clear. It will dip down into the low 60s. The weather outlook for the weekend looks beautiful with both Saturday and Sunday. Sunday, partly sunny and partly cloudy. Continued humidity and breezy Sunday evening with highs reaching into the 80s. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. The midday drawing numbers for Thursday were 1, 7, six, and four. The evening drawing numbers were zero, eight, four, and seven. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were three, eleven, twenty, twenty-two, and twenty-six. For Wednesday's Powerball drawing, we have numbers ten, fifteen, twenty-one, sixty-seven, sixty-nine, and the extra ball of three, and finally, for the Mega Millions Billion Dollar Jackpot on Tuesday, the numbers were 13, 19, 20, 32, 33, and the extra ball of 14. Sales Tax Holiday This Weekend by Seth Jacobson of Wicked Local. If you enjoy looking for a deal, you're probably aware that the Massachusetts Sales Tax Holiday is Saturday and Sunday, August 12th and 13th, respectively. On those two days, most retail items worth up to $2,500 that are purchased in Massachusetts for personal use will be exempt from the state's 6.25% sales tax. Mass.gov notes that the following items do not qualify for the sales tax holiday exemption. Meals, motor vehicles, motor boats, telecommunications services, gas, steam, electricity, tobacco products, marijuana or marijuana products, alcoholic beverages, and any single item whose price is more than $2,500. It's an annual event now, so people know what to expect, said John Hurst, president of the Retailers Association of Massachusetts, and I think it comes at the right time. He said consumers are dealing with inflation and rising interest rates and appreciate the deals that come with the sales tax holiday. It's not the largest sales tax holiday in the country, but it's the broadest, Hurst said, noting that Massachusetts' event covers the most products, as other states only cover things like back-to-school clothes or appliances. According to the Federation of Tax Administrators, there are 16 other states with sales tax holidays. Alabama, Alaska, and Arkansas, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Missouri, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Tennessee, Texas, and West Virginia. Puerto Rico, a U.S. territory, also has one. Hearst said it's good that Massachusetts has adopted such a holiday, given it borders New Hampshire, which does not impose any sales tax. It's good to keep our dollars within our own state, rather than having people go to New Hampshire to do their shopping, he said. People will see Black Friday types of deals this year during the sales tax holiday, Hearst added. Margins are tight for sellers these days. We should see some very good deals for customers. 
Consumers have been dealing with a tough financial climate, which means they're in a tougher spot than they were even a year ago. But I still think they'll be making purchases this year. An item will qualify for the tax exemption on the holiday if you order and pay for an eligible item over the Internet. No sales tax is due on that purchase, even if delivery of the item occurs after the sales tax holiday weekend. Layaway sales do not qualify for the sales tax holiday exemption. If you rent an item that qualifies for the sales tax holiday exemption, you can use the sales tax holiday for rentals of up to 30 days. However, the rental must be paid for in full during the holiday weekend. Rentals do not include those for motor vehicles or motor boats. The sales tax holiday is limited to eligible sales of items costing $2,500 or less. In addition, if you spend more than $2,500 on one item, the entire amount is subject to sales tax, not just the amount that exceeded $2,500. Items of clothing are generally exempt from the sales tax unless they cost more than $175. For items that cost more than that, only the amount over $175 is subject to tax. However, if the price of an item of clothing is more than $2,500, the first $175 is not subject to tax, but the rest would be. Provided the price of each individual item is $2,500 or less, you can combine as many items as you want tax-free, even if their total cost exceeds $2,500. No tax is due if you pick up an item after the holiday, provided it was paid for during the holiday weekend. Put another way, you will not be subject to the tax retroactively. According to the language of the sales tax bill, which passed in 2018, the state's revenue commissioner is authorized to designate, by July 15th, a two-day sales tax-free weekend during August. Investigation begins into fatal boat crash in Dennis, DA says, by Graham Crewinghouse of the Cape Cod Times. Authorities have launched a criminal investigation into the boat crash in Sisuit Harbor in East Dennis that killed 17-year-old Sadie Morrow, according to Cape and Islands District Attorney Rob Galabois. In the July 21st crash, a boat struck a jetty and also a teenage boy was injured, Massachusetts State Police said at the time. Galabois' office will be joined in the investigation by Dennis Police, State Police, Massachusetts Environmental Police, and Regional and State Police dive teams, according to a press release issued Tuesday. Galabois confirmed the investigation Tuesday in an interview with the Times, but declined to comment further because the investigation was ongoing. The crash occurred around 9 p.m. on July 21st, according to the release. State police said Morrow's body was recovered from the harbor around 11.30 p.m. by Dennis Fire and regional dive team personnel. Morrow, a lacrosse player and rising senior at Do Dover Sherburn High School in Dover, was committed to Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to play college lacrosse. The boat bore an Alabama registration and had six people on board at the time of the crash, according to an earlier release. Staff of the Northside Marina, a marina at Sisuit Harbor, confirmed on July 24th that the boat, a Regulator 26, had been docked there. Morrow was remembered by her school with a gathering at the school library on July 24th according to Dover Sherburn principal John Smith, who said of Morrow in a letter to the school community, 
that she had a heart of gold and the sweetest spirit. A hard-working student and great athlete, Sadie was genuine and effortlessly kind. Concerns over cable, scheduling, and marine life aired by Graham Crewinghouse of the Cape Cod Times. A hearing on the planned cable landing in Centerville for the large Park City Wind Renewable Energy Project drew many concerned residents on Tuesday, most of whom took issue with the plans and almost all of whom said there would be more complaints to come. The developer, Avangrid, detailed plans to the Barnstable Conservation Commission over Zoom to surface an electric cable at Craigville Beach and route it from there underneath Centerville River. The commission did not reach a verdict on the plans Tuesday, continuing the hearing to September 5th. The hearing was initially slated for mid-July before residents raised concerns that not enough notice was given, at which point Avangrid agreed to move it back to this Tuesday. That date presented its own problems, though, as the Centerville Civic Association had its annual summer meeting scheduled for the same time. That scheduling conflict was top of mind for many of those who did attend Tuesday's hearing, and they asked for continuance so more Centerville residents could have their voices heard. After some discussion, Avangrid and the Commission settled on a continuance date of September 5th at 6.30 p.m. Where would the Park City wind cable go? The cable would be routed from the Park City wind site south of Martha's Vineyard and just southwest of the Vineyard wind site where construction has already begun on a similar wind farm. It would cross Vineyard Sound just a few feet below the seabed using much the same path as other existing cables and surface at Craigville Beach. From there, a Vangrid would send the cable through a property on Short Beach Road that the developers recently purchased to facilitate the transmission and under Centerville River via microtunnel. The cable would end at a new substation to be built just north of Waquocket Lake, according to Tuesday's presentation. Barnstable Conservation Commission member Louise Foster asked whether the cable could be routed through the nearby bridge over Centerville River, avoiding risks of microtunneling. Avangrid officials said that the potential of flooding damaging the bridge would concern them if they were to go that route. Later in the meeting, Centerville resident Sandy Jones asked why, given the size of the project in total for Avangrid, the town could not negotiate the developers into building a new bridge to span the river to avoid tunneling beneath it. As with most other questions, Avangrid declined to respond, saying near the end of the meeting that they'd bring more comprehensive responses to the September 5th follow-up. Most committee members voiced wary support for the plans. Member Peter Sampu called the impact extraordinarily minimal noting that the amount of dredging that would be required in Vineyard Sound would be less invasive than the dredging sea clam harvesters do routinely. If the project is already approved by federal and state boards, he said, he had no problem giving the go-ahead. Centerville residents didn't tend to agree. Shelley Sterling asked for further review of the potential impact of the oceanic cables on whales because whale calves are often raised in the area where the wind farm is slated to go, and the construction could impair their echolocation. Holly Johnston of Avangrid said the company has developed a suite of protections for whales together with the neighboring vineyard wind project and did not anticipate any harm. 
Ann Salas of Marston's Mills said she's concerned about the coolant oil that would be required in the substation and what would happen in the case of a substation explosion. Jack Vaccaro of Evangrid clarified a misconception that the substation would not be on Craigville Beach, but far inland in Centerville, and that they did not anticipate any adverse effects on the beach. Chuck Tuttle of Centerville said the project is among the first of its kind in the nation, saying that nobody can guarantee it will be accident-free. He asked that the town require a Vangrid to pay a bond to secure against any unanticipated accidents causing damage. A Vangrid had said previously that it would service areas of Connecticut. Salas suggested that the developers should have considered New Bedford as the site to ground cables, since their infrastructure would mean less of an impact on the community there. She said she thought they hadn't because it would be more expensive. The bottom line of this company is not our concern, Salas said. Ellen Nozzle of Centerville, one of the last of the dozen or so speakers, agreed that an 800-megawatt electrical cable should be brought somewhere with more industrialized infrastructure. Make no mistake, Nozzle said, we are industrializing Barnstable to send electricity to Bridgeport, Connecticut. Hyannis Public Library adds Community Fridge for Free Meals by Graham Crewinghouse of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Hyannis. For more than a century, the Hyannis Public Library has stood on Main Street, half a block from the Village Green, offering residents and passersby a free open space where they can devour a good book. This summer, on the back of a clever partnership with Family Table Collaborative, they've begun to offer something else for people to devour, free of charge, a fresh, nutritious meal. It's so exciting, Family Table Collaborative Director Jenny Wheeler nearly shouted Monday, while Library Executive Director Antonia Stevens jumped up and down next to her, We're a match made in heaven. Since the project launched last week, the Collaborative has supplied fresh, pre-made meals and snacks to a community fridge in the library which library staff pairs with educational materials on good nutrition. We want to teach nutritional literacy as a basic life skill, Stevens said Monday, holding a container of ceviche she'd gotten from the fridge. The Family Table Collaborative already provides healthy meals for those in need at various places around the Cape. But where the library comes in is in one of the most important variables, location. The Hyannis Public Library at 401 Main Street is open six days a week until as late as 7 p.m. on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and is close to areas where people who may be experiencing food insecurity tend to congregate, as Stevens observed. In many ways, she said, it's the ideal place to keep a communal fridge well-stocked with fresh fruit, salads, and zip-closed sandwiches. Miller said the pair drew inspiration from the crop swap fridge at the Provincetown Public Library, where, since 2019, the library has allowed people to donate fresh produce as they're able and take as they need. Wheeler said the project gave them the idea to do the same in Barnstable, but with meals rather than whole produce. The cost of living here on the Cape is significantly higher than the mean, Stevens said. So food insecurity affects a vastly greater number of people than folks tend to realize. It's not just about being able to eat, Stevens said. 
but being able to eat nutritious, complete meals, which are often more expensive than unhealthy fast food. Putting these free meals in a prominent place, she hopes, will help allay that issue. Wheeler said she's been glad to see the positive reception the initiative has gotten in its first week, some of which ended up coming in handy. Midnight Hour, a seafood delivery company based in Harwich, loaned the Family Table Collaborative its refrigerated truck, she said, so they could pick up leftover food from the Provincetown finish line of last weekend's Pan Mass Challenge. They ended up picking up two tons of food, Wheeler said. The food, she said, was perfectly good to stock the community fridge and would have just ended up in the trash. Stevens said Monday that she hopes the partnership will inspire more community fridges across the Cape. It's all about meeting people where they're at, she said, being the hub to connect people with information and good food. At least 36 killed in wildfires on Maui. By Audrey McAvoy, Jennifer Cinco Kelleher, and Nick Perry of the Associated Press. Dateline, Wailuku, Hawaii. Wildfires fueled by a dry summer and strong winds from a passing hurricane killed 36 people and destroyed hundreds of homes and other buildings on the Hawaiian island of Maui in the deadliest blaze in the U.S. in years. The fire took the island by surprise, leaving behind burned-out cars on usually busy streets and smoking piles of rubble where historic buildings had stood in Lahaina, which dates to the 1700s, and has long been a favorite destination of tourists. Crews battled blazes in several places on the island Wednesday, and the flames forced some adults and children to flee into the ocean. At least 36 people have died, according to a statement from Maui County late Wednesday that said no other details were available. Officials said earlier that 271 structures were damaged or destroyed and dozens of people injured. It is the deadliest fire since the 2018 campfire in California, which killed at least 85 people and virtually razed the town of Paradise. Officials warned that the death toll in Hawaii could rise with the fires still burning and teams spreading out to search charred areas. Lahaina residents Kamuela Kawakoa and Aluya Lasso described a harrowing escape under smoke-filled skies Tuesday afternoon. The couple and their six-year-old son got back to their apartment after a quick dash to the supermarket for water and only had time to grab a change of clothes and run as the bushes around them caught fire. We barely made it out, Kawakoa said at an evacuation shelter on Wednesday, still unsure if anything was left of their apartment. As the family fled, a senior center across the road erupted in flames. They called 911 but didn't know if the people got out. As they drove away, downed utility poles and others fleeing in cars slowed their progress. It was so hard to sit there and just watch my town burn to ashes and not be able to do anything, said Kawakoa, age 34. As the fires raged, tourists were advised to stay away, and about 11,000 visitors flew out of Maui on Wednesday with at least 1,500 more expected to leave Thursday, according to Ed Sniffen, State Transportation Director. Officials prepared the Hawaii Convention Center in Honolulu to take in the thousands who have been displaced. Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson Jr. said the island had been tested like never before in our lifetime. 
were grieving with each other during this inconsolable time, he said in a statement. In the days ahead, we will be stronger as a kaulu, or community, as we rebuild with resilience and aloha. The fires were whipped by strong winds from Hurricane Dora passing far to the south. It's the latest in a series of disasters caused by extreme weather around the globe this summer. Experts say climate change is increasing the likelihood of such events. Wildfires aren't unusual in Hawaii, but the weather of the past few weeks created the fuel for a devastating blaze, and, once ignited, the high winds created the disaster, said Thomas Smith, an associate professor in environmental geography at the London School of Economics and Political Science. The vegetation in the lowland areas of Maui is particularly parched this year, with below-average precipitation in the spring and hardly any rainfall this summer. The Big Island is also currently seeing blazes, Mayor Mitch Roth said, although there had been no reports of injuries or destroyed homes there. Aerial video from Lahaina showed dozens of homes and businesses raised. Smoking heaps of rubble lay piled high next to the waterfront. Boats in the harbor were scorched, and gray smoke hovered over the leafless skeletons of charred trees. It's horrifying. I've flown here 52 years, and I've never seen anything come close to that, said Richard Olston, a helicopter pilot for a tour company. We had tears in our eyes. Search and rescue teams are fanning out in the devastated areas in the hope of finding survivors. Adam Weintraub, communication director for the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, said on Good Morning America. Addressing the fear that could, could be additional deaths, Weintraub acknowledged these were large and fast-moving fires, and it's only recently that we've started to get our arms around them and contain them. So we're hoping for the best, but prepared for the worst. Consumer inflation rises slightly. Prices ease for groceries and some other items, by Paul Wiseman of the Associated Press. Dateline, Washington. Inflation in the United States edged up in July after 12 straight months of declines. But excluding volatile food and energy costs, so-called core inflation matched the smallest monthly rise in nearly two years, a sign that the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes have continued to slow price increases. The inflation data the government reported Thursday showed that overall consumer prices rose 3.2% from a year earlier. That was up from a 3% annual rise in June, which was the lowest rate in more than two years. The latest figure remained far below last year's peak of 9.1%, though still above the Fed's 2% inflation target. The Fed, economists, and investors, though, pay particular attention to core inflation figures for signs of where price pressures might be headed. From June to July, core inflation remained a tame 0.2%, thanks to easing prices for such items as groceries, used vehicles, and electronics. Core prices are moving in the right direction, said Rubila Faroki chief U.S. economist for high-frequency economics. That will be welcome news to the Fed's policymakers. Thursday's price data will be among the key barometers the central bank will weigh in deciding whether to continue raising interest rates. 
In its drive to tame inflation, the Fed has raised its benchmark rate 11 times since March 2022 to a 22-year high. Overall prices, measured on a month-to-month basis, rose 0.2% in July. Roughly 90% of it reflected higher housing costs. Excluding shelter, Paul Ashworth of Capital Economics calculated that core prices actually fell 0.1% from June to July. Food prices, which have pressured Americans' budgets for more than two years, rose a mild 0.2% from June to July. Eggs, meat, beer, and dairy products all declined in price, though food is still up 4.9% over the past 12 months. Also falling in July were prices of televisions, audio equipment, and pet food. Energy costs rose just 0.1%. Modestly higher gasoline prices were offset by falling electricity prices. Used vehicle prices fell for a second straight month, dipping 1.3% from June and 5.6% from a year ago. Those prices had surged last year as a shortage of computer chips disrupted production of new vehicles, forcing more buyers into the used market. The chip shortage has eased and new car production has rebounded, thereby reducing demand for used cars and trucks. On a three-month basis, consumer inflation was an annualized 1.9% from May through July, the slowest such pace in three years. Some economists prefer the three-month figure because it captures inflation trends with less volatility than the month-to-month figures. Economists say that in the Fed's fight to conquer inflation, the easy progress has likely already been achieved. Gasoline prices, for example, though liable to bounce around from month to month, have already plunged from a peak national average of more than $5 a gallon, which was reached in June of last year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Much of the inflationary surge that began in 2021 was caused by clogged supply chains. Ports, factories, and freight yards were overwhelmed by the explosive economic rebound from the pandemic recession of 2020. The result was delays, parts shortages, and higher prices. But supply chain backlogs have eased in the past year, sharply reducing upward pressure on goods prices. Prices of long-lasting manufactured goods actually dipped in June. Now the Fed faces a daunting problem, inflationary pressure in service businesses, restaurants, hotels, entertainment venues, and the like, where wages represent a substantial share of costs. Worker shortages have led many of these businesses to sharply raise pay. Last week, for example, the Labor Department reported that average hourly wages rose 4.4% in July from a year earlier, more than expected. To cover their higher labor costs, companies have typically raised their prices, thereby fueling inflation. Another factor working against continued declines in year-over-year inflation rates is that prices soared in the first half of last year before slowing in the second half. So any price increase in July would have the effect of boosting the year-over-year inflation rate. Still, economists caution against reading too much into one month of numbers. Many of them expect inflation to continue trending lower. 
despite chronic concerns about higher labor costs, one closely watched measure of wages and salaries, the Labor Department's Employment Cost Index grew more slowly from April through June. Excluding government jobs, employee pay rose 1%, less than the 1.2% increase in the first three months of 2023. Compared with a year earlier, wages and salaries grew 4.6%, down from a year-over-year -year increase of 5.1% in the first quarter. Many Americans continue to feel under pressure from higher prices. There are some things you can stop buying or slow down on buying, said Mark Dye of Port St. Lucie, Florida. The cost of junk food has gone outrageously high. It's five or six dollars for a bag of chips, and I just think that's ridiculous. And then we pay even more for the healthy stuff. Fed officials will have plenty of data to absorb before deciding whether to continue raising rates. Thursday's report is the first of two CPI numbers the policymakers will see before their next meeting, September 19th to 20th. In addition, their favored inflation gauge, called the Personal Income Expenditures Price Index, comes out on August 31st, and the August jobs report will be released September 1st. We've reached the halfway point of our program today, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Linda J. Volker. Change of location, Chatham. Linda J. Volker, age 91, passed away on June 17th at her residence at Liberty Commons in Chatham. A memorial service will be held at the Nickerson Funeral Home on Crowell Road in Chatham on Thursday, August 17th at 11 a.m. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made in Linda's memory to Wild Care on Smith Lane in Eastham. A full obituary can be found at the website of Nickerson Funerals. Augustine Joy Blanchard, Dateline Mashpee. Heaven has gained another angel. Augustine Joy Paradin Blanchard of Mashpee passed away on July 29th after a brief illness. Born in Louisiana on November 8, 1934, Joy moved to Cape Cod in the 1950s. After raising her eight children, she went on many adventures across the U.S. with her husband, Lou. She then moved back to Cape Cod to be near her family and friends. She enjoyed casinos, cooking gumbo and chicken soup, visiting local shops and yard sales, and also working at the Mashpee Thrift Shop. She was also an avid Red Sox fan. Joy is survived by her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and many other family members. She was preceded in death by her daughters Ellen and Deborah and her grandson Stephen. Her parents, August Paradin and Lorena Hebert Paradin, five brothers, and Mary Rose Harmon, and, and her other sister, Anita. May they all be a happy family once again. Interment will be private. In lieu of flowers, the family has asked donations to be made to St. Jude's Hospital. The Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Husband Feels Betrayed After Spouse Makes Secret Plans to Meet X. Carolyn Hacks is away. The following first appeared on May 22, 2009. Dear Carolyn, an old friend contacted me online. 
I haven't seen him in 25 years. Although we dated for a short time in our teens, we were friends for several years after. We lost touch when I married and moved away. We agreed to meet for a drink, talk, share old photos, etc. There was no mention or hint of romance in the etc., and none anticipated. I have always been faithful and take my commitment to remain so seriously. I told my husband about the contact when it first occurred, but unfortunately I didn't tell him as plans to meet evolved. It was always my intention to tell him I just never found the right moment. A few days before the planned get-together, my husband found out on his own while using my computer. As a result, he thinks I lied, and although it didn't feel like it at the time, he's right. He was extremely upset and told me flat out that if I didn't agree to ending communication, that he would move out. I agreed, and I feel awful. I love my husband, but I also miss my old friend. I'm feeling controlled and that my husband is being unreasonable. Can you see an amicable outcome here? Signed, D. Dear D, by amicable, I'm afraid you mean fairy tale. You want your husband to cool off, apologize for overreacting, accept your apology and explanation, and send you off to see your friend with his blessing. I don't see that happening. Not with this husband and not with this friend. While his threat to move out was an overreaction, I can certainly see why your husband feared an affair. Regardless of what kind of etc. you had in mind, you were arranging to meet a former love behind your current love's back. As it happens, though, your insistence that you had no intention of being unfaithful is credible. That's because unfaithfulness isn't the only reason people sneak. Sometimes they sneak because they expect someone to misread their motives, disapprove, and shut them down. And they fear both the sting of disapproval and the emotional confinement of being told what to do. Imagine a child sneaking candy to dodge strict parents. So I'm thinking you never found the right moment because there was no such thing. You expected your husband would freak. The only question, which only you can answer, is whether you correctly anticipated his reaction because you, one, know he's possessive, jealous, controlling, two, we're feeling some romantic twinges. Three, underestimate him by assuming he can't take the truth when he'd actually prefer it. Or four, a blend of the above. The candy-sneaking dynamic, as it happens, inflates both the appeal of the thing one is sneaking off to do and the perceived obstacles to being honest. If your husband is normally secure and trusting, then severing the tie to your old friend closes the issue properly, if sadly. But if this is just the latest episode of your life as facade keeper, for whatever reason, then please give careful thought to other ways you've gone underground to tow some invisible line. Tired Forensic Artist Publishes Sketches of Cape Humor by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. When Andrew Neil McGonagall was an FBI-trained sketch artist working as a Cape and Islands criminal investigator, colleagues often told him he should publish a book of sketches. Not of wanted people in his forensic sketches, but of humorous scenes he drew in his off time. Now, a decade after retiring, McGonagall, who goes by Neil, has done just that. 
The Things I See Down by the Sea, a satirical collection of Cape Cod. Published by Dorrance Publishing in 2023 for $19, is available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Target, and will soon be sold at some local stores, said McGonagall, who will have his first book signing, 2 p.m. August 15th at the Jonathan Bourne Public Library in Bourne. My whole family growing up and myself had that Irish warped sense of humor. At one point, I had a t-shirt that said, I work in crime scene. I never get invited to a good time, McGonagall said, during an interview at Daily Brew Coffee House in Katomet, where he often sketches. I always have a small sketchbook with me, he said. If you look at my cartoons, you can pretty much tell where I've been. In the mid-1990s, McGonagall was one of 13 chosen from around the world to study forensic sketching with the FBI at Quantico. The FBI called on his services a few times after the training, especially post-9-11. We were all very good artists already, he recalled of his training. With the FBI, it was less about drawing and more about honing interview techniques. McGonagall recalled one case where two children being interviewed about a would-be abductor each separately described him as having Bugs Bunny teeth. McGonagall drew the suspect with oversized protruding teeth, which his colleagues had trouble accepting. But when the suspect was arrested, he had oversized protruding teeth. I knew that those two young girls were offering a description within their frame of reference. The fact that they both chose that image told me a lot. So how does a career of criminal investigation for the Barnstable County Sheriff's Department lead to a paperback book of cartoons filled with lighthouses, sharks, clams, seagulls, and other iconic Cape images? McGonagall said his book represents the way he sees the world after decades of being a criminal investigator. Explaining the cartoon on the cover, McGonagall said tourists see a lighthouse surrounded by ocean, but he sees the sharks lurking just beneath the surface. The sketches inside reflect that same sense of humor, an angle that makes you say, that's a little warped, but a lot funny. McGonagall dedicated the book to his wife of 38 years, Martha Reese McGonagall, Bourne's first female patrol officer and the first woman to work as police prosecutor and present cases in court for the department. She died in 2021 after contracting COVID-19 at the age of 63. He notes in the dedication that she supported and encouraged all his ventures. Also in the dedication are his parents and seven siblings, the Irish family where, he said, he grew up with his sometimes odd sense of humor. Your Life into a Book Explore Cape's Most Enduring Mystery by Amber May Rivard of the Cape Cod Times. A good variety can sum up the description of this week's best bets. The Lady of the Dunes was once Cape Cod's most enduring mystery. Come along for a talk with the author of Searching for the Lady of the Dunes and learn how this beautiful place turned into the Wild West in the 60s and 70s. You can also journey back into time and party like it's 1923. Make sure to shimmy into your best deco-inspired fashion at the Martha's Vineyard Museums. Deco Dreams, a night of homage and fashion on Martha's Vineyard. Are you ready to party like it's 1923? In honor of Martha's Vineyard's museum's founding year, 
there will be a night of Art Deco glitz and glamour to enjoy with everyone. Wear your best Art Deco-inspired fashion and come enjoy some specialty cocktails. This fashionable event will start at 6 p.m. on August 12th on Lagoon Pond Road in Vineyard Haven. Admission is $75 per person. Explore the museum exhibits after hours, take creative shots in the photo booth, listen to live music from the Sultans, and get your dance on. For tickets and more information, visit the website mvmuseum.org. Take a trip back into history with Mark Shapiro's talk in Truro. Mark Shapiro's lecture will highlight early 19th century African-American potter Thomas W. Comeraw, a skilled craftsman who was born enslaved. He rose to prominence owning and managing his own pottery business. Over the next two decades, he accumulated property, participated in political debates, and New York City's free black community. The lecture will start at 6.30 p.m. on August 16th on Edgewood Way in Truro. Tickets are $15 in advance or $20 on the day of the event. Shapiro's extensive research on Comoraw over the past decade will help shine the light on not only a craftsman and business owner, but a family man and citizen. For tickets and more information, visit the website castlehill.org. Find fiction in your life. All ages are welcome to Osterville Workshop. If you're an Ernest Hemingway fan or interested in a drastic career change, this program is for you. Robert Markowitz will be giving a presentation on how writers can create fiction from their lives. He'll also use Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises to illustrate his four insights on how you can shape life experiences into fiction. The presentation will start at 3 p.m. on August 14th at the Osterville Village Library on Wiano Avenue. His four insights are to look for the deeper meaning, heighten the stakes, find or create the human antagonist, and condense the timeline. Markowitz will use audiovisual programming to show how Hemingway did this. Writers and non-writers are welcome. For more information, visit the website of the Osterville Village Library. Cape Cod's Most Enduring Mystery, The Lady of the Dunes in Provincetown. The Lady of the Dunes was the biggest mystery on Cape Cod for almost 50 years. Found brutally murdered and mutilated on the remote dunes in Provincetown in 1974, the victim was finally identified last year as Ruth Marie Terry. Author Christopher Setterlund will talk about his book, Searching for the Lady of the Dunes, which uncovers the Wild West of a mess Provincetown was in during the 60s and 70s. The author's talk begins at 1 p.m. on August 18th at the Osterville Village Library. Thanks to people who were living in Provincetown, this true crime thriller is mixed with a splash of historical fiction. Morning Health Walk and Talk at Fuller Farm in Barnstable With a staggering statistic, of 40% of Americans having two or more chronic diseases, the Barnstable Land Trust is exploring how lifestyle medicine can have lasting impacts. As part of this initiative, there will be a free morning health walk and talk at the Fuller Farm, August 12th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. The farm is on Route 149 in Marston's Mills. 
learn about Cape Cod Hospital's new lifestyle medicine program. It's designed to prevent and treat chronic conditions by focusing on eating healthy, increasing exercise, stress management, and more. A light breakfast will be served at the barn before the talk and walk around the one-mile path. This event is free, but pre-registration is required. Visit blt.org for more information. Honoring the Hoyt family at Cape Cod Coffee in Mashpee. Dick and Rick Hoyt's story is one of pure inspiration. Father Dick would push his son Rick, who had cerebral palsy, in a wheelchair for marathons and races. They completed hundreds of races and are true staples for diversity, equity, and inclusion. In anticipation for the ASICS Falmouth Road Race, Cape Cod Coffee has released a new flavor, Runner's Roast, described as mild with notes of caramel, toffee, and chocolate. The coffee is $17 per bag, and a portion of every purchase will go to the Hoyt Foundation to help America's disabled children. Visit CapeCodCoffee.com for more information. Late Night Eats on the Cape That Can't Be Beat by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Oh, Massachusetts, land of the early closing. Cape Cod is no exception to the Commonwealth's plague with many places shuttering up around 8 or 9 p.m. For such a hot summer destination, you'd think most places would adjust the hours for the season. But in the land of no happy hour discounts on drinks, early closing times don't come as a surprise either. However, there is salvation. You just have to know where to find it. Here's where to find a late-night bite on the Cape. Anejo Mexican Bistro in Hyannis and Falmouth. With locations in Hyannis and Falmouth, Anejo Mexican Bistro offers classic Mexican fare, such as tacos, burritos, and enchiladas, with a good selection of appetizers and sides as well. Prices range depending on what strikes your fancy, but there's a good deal to be found for everyone in your party. Appetizers stay between $13 and $18, with additional charges for meat additions on items such as nachos. Tacos cost between $15 and $18. Burritos and chimichangas are $17 to $19. The house specials are the most expensive items on the menu, ranging from $22 to $33, but feature dishes such as carne asada and cornflake-crusted fish. As for the drinks, Anejo has two margarita menus, standard and skinny, as well as a selection of cocktails, beers, wine, and sangria. They also have a tequila and mezcal menu. Anejo was open from 11.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. Monday to Saturday and from 10.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. on Sunday. Chapin's Fish and Chips in Dennisport. In Dennisport, stop by Chapin's Fish and Chips for some seafood staples, including fish and chips, lobster rolls, and fish tacos. They've been serving up seafood on the Cape for 25 years, so you could say they know a thing or two about a good fish. While most of the seafood, most of the menu is seafood, they do cater to those who may not want a taste of the ocean, offering burgers, wings, steak tips, and other pub food fare. Chapin's can be a little bit pricey, with fish and chips coming in at almost $22, but there's some more affordable gems to be found on the menu, such as the sausage sandwich for 10 a bowl of clam chowder for 8 and the chicken parm sandwich for 13 
My advice, split some apps with your group or stick to the sandwiches and salads to avoid the higher cost menu items. Chapin's, also known as The Chip, is open from 11.30 a.m. to 1 a.m. seven days a week. Spiritus Pizza in Provincetown. A late night slice is a luxury and a 2 a.m. closing time is a blessing in Massachusetts. At Spiritus Pizza in Provincetown, they have the classic slices of cheese and pepperoni or a white pizza option. Slices go to $4 to $5 a pop. It can be ordered starting at $24. Spiritus makes three red pizzas, including the meat Italian, a three-meat pie, and three white pizzas like the Italian Garden with pesto ricotta, sun-dried tomatoes, and artichoke hearts, or you can build your own. Spiritus Pizza is open from 11.30 a.m. to 2 a.m. seven days a week. They're cash only, so keep that in mind. Be sure you show up for a slice. Retired Judge Gregory Williams digs up tales of Barnstable's bad guys by Barbara Clark, special to the Cape Cod Times. As a tourist haven and one of New England's most picturesque areas, Cape Cod has always promoted its picture postcard images of cozy cottages, butterfly-filled flower gardens, and iconic seaside scenery. Gregory Williams, on the other hand, has always been fond of depicting some of Cape Cod's less hallowed images. Williams, who retired in 2015 as a district court judge in Massachusetts, is a popular and well-known local speaker. He's made it one of his post-retirement callings to occasionally whisper in our ears there's, a, there's an all-too-human, darker side to some of the histories and anecdotes that populate our Cape Cod heritage. Witness his many talks and programs about local murder and crime, often dating back to the early days of the settlers and traders from Europe, as they arrived to explore and then build up the New England colonies. On August 12th, Williams will host his first walking tour through an atmospheric neighborhood of Barnstable Village where he'll meet participants to recount some dark tales concerning what he calls law and crime in Barnstable Village, stopping at each locale where the historical events took place. Participants will meet at 9 a.m. at Sturgis Library to begin the walk, which will be less than a mile in length. Williams' stories will span the years from the late 1700s all the way to the early 2000s. First up along the tree-shaded Old King's Highway is the old colonial courthouse, circa 1760s, the second courthouse to be built in Barnstable. Williams will call upon the only known record of proceedings from that court in 1791, which recount a crime concerning concealment of a pregnancy, a complex legal issue of that day. The walk will pass by a plaque that marks the site of Barnstable's very first courthouse, and continue on to the one-time Lothrop residence, 1644, that's now the Sturgis Library, connecting to some of Williams's stories about the Lothrop family and its cursed Sturgis descendants. Then it's on to Crocker Tavern and the unfortunate tale of Anne Freeman, a village shopkeeper loyal to Britain in the time of the Revolution, who became a victim of brutal torture inflicted by a group of what Williams calls violent and nasty Revolutionary War patriots who were intolerant of her freedom of speech when it conflicted with their own views. The iconic 1830s Barnstable County Courthouse 
Williams has tales to tell about infamous crimes, beginning with Charles Freeman, who murdered his own child in the late 1800s in a spate of religious fervor and continuing all the way to the 1960s, when the trial of 20th century serial murderer Antone Tony Costa turned Truro into a sinister place for a time. Later came the infamous Cape Cod trial surrounding the murder of Krista Worthington in the early 2000s. Across the street in the village, William shares another love-gone-wrong story from the 1920s, which ends in tragedy for yet another shopkeeper. The walk ends just up the street at the 1690 Old Jail in back of the Coast Guard Heritage Museum at Cobbs Hill. How did it all begin, this idea of a retired judge dredging up old crimes? Williams's true crime stories about New England's darker legacies and colorful characters have caught the interest of Cape Codders for nearly a decade, from his research into murder committed by a Mayflower passenger to a whale ship mutiny, adventures clashing with pirates on the high seas, and many more New England mysteries and sagas. Not to be confused with other walks in Barnstable Village that relate to possible haunting presences in tavern or burial grounds, William's legal background has led him to revisit historical crimes and misdemeanors of the flesh-and-blood variety that have dotted our history, often illuminating political and social divisions every bit as rancorous as those we see today. Williams is not exactly sure when or where his love for strange and macabre histories may have been born, but he remembers a few antecedents. My grandmother loved the National Enquirer, he said also related that his mother took him to see his very first movie at the theater in 1958. It was called The Screaming Skull. His reaction? I loved it. If you go to Law and Crime in Barnstable Village, a walking tour. The tour will be led by Gregory Williams and will set off at 9 a.m. Saturday, August 12th, and again the following Saturday, August 19th from Sturgis Library on Route 6A in Barnstable Village. The less-than-one-mile walk will end at the old jail on Cobbs Hill and takes between 60 and 90 minutes. Registration is limited. Pre-registration is required. You can do that by going to the Sturgis Library website. Need some beach picnic fixins? Here's where to go on Cape Cod by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. There's nothing quite like the joy of walking out of the water and up to the sand, back to wherever you've set up camp, and enjoying a refreshing sandwich in the sun. It's an essential part of the summer even when you have to fight off the seagulls. Whether you're preparing for a day baking away under the sun's rays or sunset watching, here are a few places on the Cape to go and get everything you need for a beach picnic. Timmy's Roast Beef in Yarmouthport is a great place to stop off on the way to the beach for some picnic essentials. With a to-the-point menu of sandwiches, appetizers, and sides, there's certainly something for everyone. Try one of their 13 sandwiches, like the Mega Roast Beef, or a sub like the Chicken Parm. If you're looking for more than just a sandwich, chicken fingers, wings, and onion rings are just some of the appetizers and sides up for grabs. A hot dog is four fifty, and sandwiches go up to fourteen ninety nine. Subs are all twelve ninety nine. Appetizers and sides range from three twenty five for a small fry 
1695 for a large order of hot wings. Timmy's also has combo options, small, regular, and super, consisting of a sandwich, side, and drink, available as well. Combo meals range from 1075 to 1499. Timmy's Roast Beef is open Monday to Saturday from 10 to 4. Farland Provisions in Provincetown. Provincetown is known for many things and its beaches certainly don't disappoint. If you're heading down to the National Seashore in Provincetown, check out Farland Provisions. There you can find your deli staples, including sandwiches and salads, and even a selection of prepared foods. Sandwiches range from 9 to 10.50, featuring Cape Cod-themed items like the Race Point and Herring Cove. But you can also build your own sandwich for 9.50 plus extras. Salads start at $6.50 for a garden salad and go up to $12.95 for a steak and blue cheese salad. Their online menu doesn't feature any prices for prepared foods, but lists items like Jamaican beef patties and spicy chicken wings. If you want to skip the trip to the store, Farland has an on-the-beach location near Herring Cove. Their beach menu has sandwiches, salads, and sides with a selection of ice cream and other desserts as well. However, their on-the-beach food truck is cash only, so to be sure to bring a few bucks with you. They're open seven days a week from 8 to 6. Sam's Deli in Eastam Self-acclaimed as being Eastam's number one deli and sandwich shop, Sam's Deli does have a good array of options to choose from. From sandwiches, 20 more of them, to salads and deli favorites like curried chicken salad, it would be hard not to find everything you need here. Sandwiches start at $10.95 and go up to $13.95, excluding the $28.99 lobster roll. If you can't find something you like from their long list of options, you can build your own sandwich for $10 or $11, depending on if you want a veggie sub or not. Salads range from $9.95, including the build-your-own option, and go up to $10.95. Deli sides and salads are $3.95 to $5.75 for a small and go up to $19.95 for a large. They're open from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., but the sandwich bar closes at 3. Lambert's Farm Market and Sandwich Whether you like your sandwiches hot or cold at the beach, there's a variety to choose from at Lambert's Farm Market. Pick something traditional, like ham and cheese or roast beef and provolone, or something new and special, like the Victor Hugo or Chairman's Club. Cold sandwiches range from $11.99 to $15.99. If you're looking for something warm, they have a selection of paninis and subs as well, from $11.99 to $15.99. For subs, the meatball is their mainstay at $14.99, but there's a sub of the day, like sausage and peppers, every day. Lambert's also has a selection of salads and soups to go, and pizzas by the slice. They're open from 7 to 6, Monday to Friday, 7 to 5 on Saturday, and 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Sunday. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.